At night, the silence is oppressive. The sticky heat attracts the mosquitoes from the swamp. The maroon's pursuers are on high alert. The shadows blend into the leaves of the trees. A sudden rain of guava balls falls and adheres to the soldiers' clothes and weapons. Upon hearing the first beat of the war drum, hundreds of bats emerge in search of fruit. The soldiers rise in terror. The drums sound menacing and the bats quickly disappear. The stunned troop are retreating and there is no human power to bring them back. They shout, terrified. Those blacks fly! The drums continue to ring in the distance, and the maroons collect the weapons and supplies that the troops left behind. In this way, the clandestine blacks delimit territories. Even today, many peasants in the surrounding area remember the rumor that the maroons fly. Warm greetings to all our listeners of Tres Cuentos, the podcast dedicated to the literary and historical narratives of Latin America. Today we continue with the second episode on Afro-Latino narratives. This episode is supported in part by a grant from the National Association of Latino Arts and Cultures and Alternate Roots. The fragment you heard at the beginning was reproduced and adapted from a story found in the article Palenque Memories of Freedom by Clara Inés Guerrero Garcia. Remember that you can follow us and contact us through Facebook and Instagram. You can find us there as Tres Cuentos Podcast. Or you can visit our website, trescuentos.com, from where you can send us an email, read the transcripts, listen to the episodes in English and in Spanish, and check some videos of the program One More Story. On this occasion, the narrative is structured in the form of a colonial newspaper. It should be clarified that since the official versions of colonial documents do not agree on some dates, we have made the best effort to estimate the flow of events chronologically. San Basilio de Palenque did not rise one day out of anywhere to become recognized as an autonomous and free community. It had to fall and rise many times under the leadership of many men and women and under different names. I am Carolina Quiroga-Stoltz, and now I present you a brief account of the many stories of the struggle for freedom that made possible El Palenque de San Basilio in Cartagena, Colombia. The King of the Arcabuco 1540. The city of Cartagena, founded only seven years ago, is in anguish. The Spanish sovereign, His Majesty King Charles V, has issued a certificate addressed to the provincial governor. His Majesty the King 
has been informed of the many black fugitives who have raised havoc among Indians. His Majesty, the King, believes that the solution is to grant forgiveness to blacks. In this way, they will calm down, leave the Indians alone, and return to their masters who will forgive them. It is imperative that this ordinance works. Cartagena is already the most active slave trading port. 1541. The measure of forgiveness for black fugitives has had little effect. It is for that reason that the governor of Cartagena has issued an ordinance permitting the Indians to capture alive or dead any black fugitive they find. Every Indian who produces a catch will be rewarded with 10 pesos. This incentive seeks to reduce possible alliances between Indians and blacks. 1575. Twenty years ago have passed since the revolt led by the black Bayano in the Panama Isthmus. Due to the troubles that came as a result of that riot, it is now commanded in the third book of the Cabildo that no black man or woman will be allowed to absent themselves from the services of their masters. Punishment for those who ignore this decree is 100 lashes. The punishment will be given as follows. The black offender will be taken to the pillory, tied with a strap of rattles and scourged. Then the black will remain tied to the pillory for the other blacks to see. It is warned that no person takes the black down under penalty of paying 20 pesos to the judge and accuser and the cabildo house in equal parts. 1590. Don Pedro de Coronado Maldonado, the Attorney General of the Province of Cartagena, has presented a list to the Council of the Indies and to His Majesty King Philip II, reporting that despite the punishments given to eradicate the problem, many continued to flee their masters and roam the land, stealing and killing many people. His Majesty, King Philip II, like his predecessor, commands to proclaim in the province a general pardon for those blacks who obediently return with their masters. Those who refuse to abide by the generous order of their gracious Majesty and that have been absent from their job for more than a year will be sentenced to the perpetual galley. Fifteen ninety nine. The neighbor Don Juan Gomez has reported that the African slave Domingo Biojo rebelled against his master and, in the company of his wife and 30 companions, has escaped in the direction of the swamp of La Matuna. Rumor has it that in the vicinity of the swamp, they have settled down and built a village. Around them, they have laid stakes, built pits, false paths, and traps. It is also said that Domingo has declared himself king of the Arcabuco, or La Matuna, and is called Bincos Biojo. Without wasting time, Don Juan Gomez has organized a recapture expedition that failed and resulted in his unfortunate death. This has led to bands of other black fugitives joining the black Domingo Biojo. Due to their large numbers, the rebel gang has sought refuge in the slopes of the dense forests. In an effort to suppress the uprising inspired by Domingo Biajo, the governor has sent Diego Hernandez Calvo, mayor of the Holy Brotherhood, with 24 soldiers and weapons to take 
the place where Don Juan Gomez has fallen. The company could hardly give a Christian burial to the brave fallen neighbors and return since they did not have enough smoldering rope for the arquebusier. The governor, Don Jeronimo de Suazo Casasola, assures that the black fugitives are planning to free a large number of slaves and move on to Mompox. From there, they plan to reach the mines of Zaragoza and achieve the uprising of the slaves who work there. They will then fall on Cartagena and from there meet in Panama with the Marones, which are in Acla. Indeed, these are times of great turbulence. Sixteen o two. Governor Don Geronimo de Suazo remains concerned about the alarming situation of those Marones that seem to multiply like the Greek Hydra. The governor, with the support of the neighbors and the cabildo of Cartagena, has determined to manage the destruction of that black settlement that is outside the law. The latest reports confirm attacks by rebel blacks in areas of Mompox, Tolu, and Tenerife. In the face of the deaths of four Spaniards and the disappearance of others, Governor Geronimo de Suazo has decided to send a militia consisting of 30 arquebusiers and a captain to conquer the illegal inhabitants of La Matuna. But the forces were repelled. Without succumbing to hopelessness, the governor has sent a second expedition, this time of 250 men and three captains, one of them commanding a group of freed blacks, those who have already bought their freedom. They have determinately embarked upon the onslaught against the people of La Matuna Swamp, entering their waters and walking with mud to their shoulders. Governor Geronimo de Suazo has called this new attack the War of the Maroons. Blacks have defended themselves with spears, arrows, stones, and some rifles they had obtained in previous assaults on neighboring farms. Still, the troops sent by the governor forced the Maroons to withdraw. Witness to the event report that some Maroon warriors have fallen and that they are on their own. They have burned their boyos. Others, black men and women, are now prisoners. The campaign was not a total success, as there are blacks who escaped and have barricaded themselves on some islets of the swamp. Despite this, the governor has informed His Majesty King Philip III that the result has been satisfactory and that the heads of Domingo Bayajo and Lorencio, general of the Great Maroon, were brought back. 1603. In a letter to His Majesty King Philip III, the governor has stated that the war on the Maroons is fruitless because the land on which the battles are fought is mountainous and rough, not to mention the large number of swamps that breed mosquitoes, other insects, and wild beasts. In addition, the warm weather, humidity, and torrential rains have sometimes made it impossible to carry out the attacks. Also, sources confirm that the leader of the Maroons, of La Mantuna, Domingo Biajo, was not killed in the last attack, instead only wounded and still on the run. 1604. The honorable and generous governor of the city of Cartagena, Don Geronimo de Suazo, has decided to sign 
a capitulation in which it is resolved to grant peace for a year to blacks who are outside the scope of the law. Consequently, the authorities of the city of Cartagena have decided to send the infantry captain Luis Polo to make peace. Initially, the king of the Arcaboco, Domingo Biojo, seems interested in the idea and expressed that he was willing to serve the king of Spain without further bloodshed. The rebel demanded that for his blacks to end the war, the Spanish authorities must spare the Maroons' lives. The illustrious governor, Jerónimo de Suazo, agreed. However, the truce did not last. The Maroons claim that the Spaniards have not kept their word. The assaults on different farms have started again. 1612. In the past 13 years, the local government has invested efforts and 36,642 pesos in the war against the Maroons. In consequence, again, the inhabitants of La Matuna have received another peace offer from the new governor, Don Diego Fernandez de Velasco, who granted free access to enter the city. Sixteen twenty-one. In reference to the black Domingo Biajo, the new governor, Don Garcia de Giron, states that he is a bellicose and courageous man who with his deeds and charms takes with him all the nations of Guinea in this city and province. He has caused so much damage, deaths, and uproar, and because of that, this city has spent more than 200,000 ducats. It is known that the village of Matuna, with Domingo Biajo at its head, has banned the entry of Spaniards who carry weapons to their town. To the frustration of the people of Cartagena, black residents of La Matuna may enter and walk armed through the streets of Cartagena. With unpleasant surprise, it is said that after the agreement, the Barun Domingo Biajo walks around our city with arrogance and dressed with a sword and a golden dagger, as if he were a great knight. When he comes to Cartagena, he is accompanied by armed blacks, and that the slaves of the city and the province have great respect for him. Now that the rebel leader has a license to walk the streets of our city, he has caused skirmishes with the guard of the prison, whom he has threatened with his spear. Consequently, at 10 o'clock tonight, Domingo Biajo has been arrested and taken to appear before the governor Garcia Giron, who has issued a trial against the Maroon. On March the 6th, after the Maroon Domingo Biajo was found guilty of conspiracy and disturbing the peace, the black rebel was sentenced to hang. The governor believes that after hanging him, the blacks will now be very quiet and peaceful. 1633. The residents of Cartagena have decided to send a statement to the King of Spain complaining about the overwhelming situation in which they leave. Despite the death of Domingo Biajo more than 12 years ago, the Palinque of La Matuna continues to attack neighboring farms, stealing cattle, kidnapping slaves, and sowing terror. The Queen and the Captain 1629 Don Francisco de Morga is the new governor and captain general of the province of Cartagena. 
He is expected to end once and for all the flight of slaves and the growing number of palinques that multiply like weeds. The palinque that is most presses him is the one known as El Limon, located more than 12 leagues from Cartagena. A black Francisco Criollo holds the highest rank and commands military chiefs called mandatores, who are also Criollis born in El Limonar. The insolent settlers of the Palinques, El Limonar, Polian, and Sanaguare consider themselves owners of Maria La Alta and Maria La Baja. Punishing them is almost impossible. The criminals are holed up in remote and hilly valleys, and their numbers have grown considerably. There also appears to be a system of hierarchy between these villages, with El Limonar being the head, while Polin and Sanaguare its subordinates. During the first years, the marons of these palinques did not cause problems to their neighbors, owners of farms and villages of nearby Indians. Still, their aggressive actions have increased with the incorporation of new fugitives into their ranks. It is challenging to estimate in detail the specific number and provenance of the inhabitants. Reliable sources confirm that much of the clandestine community that lives outside the law is made up of Creoles, Angolan Africans, especially Malimbas, and others of diverse origin. Sixteen thirty three. The problems with that palinque El Limonar continues. Don Francisco de Murga writes to His Majesty King Philip IV, recounting the severe state of which the city of Cartagena suffers. Under interrogation, the black Lorenzo Criollo has reported that Francisco Criollo is still captain of El Limonar, but that after the victorious Spanish soldiers conquered the Palenque of El Polin in 1632, the surviving blacks of that village took refuge in El Limonar, thickening the ranks and declaring a black creole of Angolan descent queen of the Palenque. This woman is called Leonor and has been seen accompanying her soldiers and Captain Francisco Criollo in military companies dressed as a man. Another informant, the black Antonio Angola, declares that the war character of El Limonar has increased, given the influence of the black Malimbas, who support that queen. They seem to want to have more warriors and workers and increase the number of women to grow families. For this reason, the Indians, farm peasants, and passers-by have been at the mercy of their assaults. In particular, we are concerned about the 2,000 slaves who work in the surrounding farms. Reports confirm the deaths of 50 Spaniards and Indians caused by these barbarians. Under the current state of affairs, we are preparing again to fight the village of El Limonar. As is already the knowledge of Her Majesty, more than 14,000 pesos have already been invested in this endeavor, and it is hoped that this time, with a force of more than 500 veteran soldiers, the suppression and eradication of those criminals will be definitively achieved. 1634. Governor Francisco de Mora has done his job. The Spanish military forces have taken the black village of El Limonar by surprise, executing its destruction. However, some blacks managed to escape the onslaught and are known to have been received in other communities, such as the Palenque de la Magdalena across the Rio Grande. 
1642. Don Nicolas Heras Pantoja, alderman and attorney of the city of Cartagena, informed the municipal authorities that in the mountains and thick forests of the province, there are more than 600 black fugitives. They have been seen in gangs fleeing their masters. And to continue with their freedom and evil customs and thefts and damage they commit, they are fortified within Palenques in the roughest and narrowest of the mountains. It is very unfortunate that the neighbors of the city and the indigenous peoples are in constant danger. Fearing that this situation might get out of hand, the alderman has asked His Majesty King Philip IV to grant forgiveness to the fugitives that return promptly to their masters. This certificate will be awarded annually in the city, farms, and places of provincial jurisdiction. The Captain of the Confederation 1655 it has been stated that there is a quarrel between the governors of the provinces of Cartagena and Santa Marta about the jurisdiction of a palenque of Maroons, equidistant to the two cities. The governor of Cartagena claims his right to take action against that village, while the governor of Santa Marta defends his right over the jurisdiction of that place. This village is said to have been in existence since about 1634, its emergence dating back to the fall of the Palenque del Limonar. However, other sources claim that at least this Palenque has been standing for 50 years. It is said that the black Domingo Criollo, also known as Domingo Grande, captained several Palenques in the Sierras de Maria, this elderly, burly, and heavy man has residence in the Palenque of San Miguel. It has also been reported that the other villages of Arenal, Duango, and Hoyanca are subordinate to the Palenque of San Miguel. There in San Miguel, Domingo Criollo presides over meetings in Apojillo, where they make decisions, deliver the news of the government, and prepare the community regarding the defense of the village. It is known that the residence in each palenque was determined by kinship, friendship, and origin. Duanga, Oyanca, and San Miguel are inhabited by Creoles, while the Arenal Palenque was populated by Africans who prefer to live separated from the black Creoles. Its captain is Francisco Mina, who is in turn military chief of all other villages. sixteen seventy nine. News arrives from the province of Santa Marta. It is said that the Maroons of the province of Cartagena see with good pleasure what has happened to the Maroons of the province of Santa Marta. A group established between Rio Hacha and Santa Marta has asked the governor to declare them free and give them lands. Recently the demand was accepted on the condition that they help the provincial government in defending the city of Santa Marta in the war against the Indians. The neighbors of the city of Cartagena do not see with good eyes the decisions made by the governor of the province of Santa Marta. The alliance between Santa Marta government and the black fugitives exasperates the spirits of both the neighbors of Cartagena and the black rebels of this region. 1680 some Maron women have been captured from the palenques of Sierras del Maria. The black Creoles Felipe and Magdalena have told that their function in the palenque was to graze the mountain, cultivate beans and pick them, 
peel and grind corn, make funche, buns, and peel rice. They also gave themselves the task of washing clothes and cooking food. As well, they comment that many men went out to work, others clear the mountains for cultivation, and others build punts. This explains why men escape more quickly than the woman when attacked. 1682. The Captain General of Cartagena has decided to implement the heavy hand against the rebels and has sent Bartolome Nuvares to attack the Palenques of the Sierras del Maria, but the attempt has failed and the troop has been outnumbered. 1688. The parish priests of Turbaco, Don Baltazar de la Fuente Robledo, recounts in one of his missionary visits he sighted a large population of Marons in the mountains. Soon after, the parish priest was called to administer the sacraments and baptize adults and children, celebrate marriages, and preach. It is said that days later, Don Baltazar has received news from Domingo Criollo, who tells him that he receives obedience from more than 600 blacks and captains, and that he offered obedience to the governor of Cartagena in exchange for freedom and for being fixed a territory where they can live in peace. Several talks have begun, and a number of capitulations have been agreed on. Without wasting time, the parish priest has continued to inform the outgoing governor, Rafael Casper Isanz, and the incoming governor, Juan de Prado Estrada, about the peace intentions of the leader of the black village of San Miguel. However, None of the governors have shown interest in the offering. On the contrary, the governor, Don Juan de Prado y Estrada, has decided to send an armed company of a thousand men to the Sierra del Maria. Despite their determination, they have encountered a vigorous defense of the Palenque, which has led the thousand men to argue for a fortnight whether to continue the attack. Finally, it has been resolved to dissolve the campaign. Soon after, news has come from the black leader that his people only wish to have official freedom as they consider themselves free. However, during the turmoil, a royal certificate has been issued which insists on continuing the persecution of the black fugitives until they are finished. The warlords of the Palinques must be severely punished. 1689. At the same time as all this happens, the parish priest Don Balthazar who continues with his desire to bring peace, has found himself in need to bring the news of what happened to His Majesty King Charles II and the Council of Indies, and has presented the capitulations proposed by the Marons of the Sierra del Maria. Sixteen ninety one. His Majesty King Charles II responds to the offer by annulling the 1688 certificate and decreeing a new pacifist certificate, where everything requested by the black fugitives is accessed, recognition of their freedom without punishment for their escape, delimitation of the territory with the right of productive use, legal and tax treatment to equal that of the free population, and autonomy of government, in return, the Marons promise not to fight and not receive any more black fugitives in the Palenque. In regard to what has been agreed, the neighbors of the city of Cartagena do not repair in showing their discontent 
with a royal mandate. The neighbors argue that by officially giving freedom to the rebels and handing them the land will only lead to the collapse of the economy, whose base is the slaves. Some say, we respect, but we do not comply. Others declare that there is a conspiracy of blacks, that fugitives and domestic slaves are conjuring up an uprising. As a result, the residents of Cartagena have gathered in the Cabildo, have demanded that the governor take up arms against the blacks of the Sierra de Maria and other palinques of the province. Plans for the attack have been drawn up, and it has been agreed that the neighbors will cover the costs of the war. The latest reports confirm that the Spanish militias in an attack on the black village Betancourt have killed five blacks and sent their heads to the governor, who has celebrated and ordered to hang them in the plaza. In the cathedral, the achievement has been celebrated with a song, Te Deum Ladaumas. This has been followed by other displays of superiority and brutality that hope to give a lesson and serve as a warning about the kind of retaliation the authorities plan to take against the black rebels. However, retaliation to the city does not seem to affect the Maroons. They have again lashed out, stealing, burning, and shouting their claim for the fulfillment of the certificate ordered by His Majesty. 1693. Due to the gravity of the situation, the Cabildo of Cartagena agrees that freedom is recognized only to the blacks who, because they were born in the Arcabucos, had no owner. In this way, the certificate ordered by His Majesty is fulfilled, and the agreement and complacency of the masters and ranchers were guaranteed. But the black rebels have opposed that condition. They argue that this will disintegrate their communities. Sixteen ninety four. The new interim governor, Don Sancho Jimeno de Orozco, ignores the pacifist certificate issued by His Majesty three years earlier. Instead, it is marched in the direction of the black villages of the Sierra de Maria, including the largest, the town of San Miguel, leading the government troops. The attack features four hundred and fifty men with a vanguard and rear battle corps and two rounds of arcabuceros on the sides. In the face of ramming, the Maroons have set fire to the Palenque and escaped. After 48 days of besieging the area, Don Sancho is aware that the Maroons have taken refuge in the Palenque de Duanca, seven leagues from there. Without wasting time, the governor sends two captains of his army against the Palenque Arenal. It is said that there were those who fell prisoners, others died in the skirmish, the rest was devastated. At the same time, a crew has been dispatched to chase the captain of the Maroons, Domingo Criollo, and his companions. In a few days comes the news that the black man known as Domingo El Grande was successfully killed off two shots of arquebus. He was found in an attempt to hide women, children, and elderly. His head is now on display in a public place in the city of Cartagena. Despite the success of the company, there are rumors that there are blacks who have taken refuge in the mountains and other palinques. The latest reports confirm that throughout the fight that took place in the mountains, the domestic slaves have continued their escape plans. The number of rebels is growing, and the conspiracies of blacks continue to haunt the government and neighbors of the city of Cartagena.
1713. The Bishop of Cartagena, Friar Antonio Maria Cassiani, has offered himself as an intermediary to achieve peace. The bishop appears to be in favor of the recognition of the freedom of the Marones. The governor complains that he has found the bishop rebuking the neighbors who punish their black slaves. 1714. The Creole Captain Nicolas de Santa Rosa signs peace, and a series of capitulations agreed with Bishop Antonio Mario Cassiani. The now reconstructed Palenque San Miguel will be baptized San Basilio Magno in honor of the Order of Saint Basil, to which Bishop Antonio Maria Cassiani belongs. It has been agreed on the self-determination of the community and that the word Palinque should be kept and used in the name in honor of all those who lived and fought for freedom in the Sierras de Maria. Very well, dear listeners. As customary, it is time to discuss some aspects of the narrative. This time we will briefly comment about the legend of Domingo Biojo, the hero in the first story, the one that kind of put things in motion. We will also talk about how Maronish was a response against the oppression of slavery how the Palenques were the space in which runaway slaves and their offspring reinvented themselves from their African roots and pointed the way of their freedom. Let's start with the feat of Domingo Viejo, which has been compiled from the few written sources dating back to his time. There are disparities in the years that he was on the run, the number of times he was attacked, the exact terms of the peace treaty, and the year he was finally captured. Even the reasons for his death sentence are unknown. Also, colonial documents recorded numerous biojos at different times in colonial history. Some were descendants of the first biojo. Others perhaps were awarded the title to continue the leadership or to use it to confuse the Spanish authorities, giving the impression that the legend was still alive. In the same way, historical documents recorded the hangings that occurred between 1600 and 1790 of Domingo Biojo, Domingo Bijo, Dominguillo Biojo, or Domingo Bio. So, I guess the image of the hero lived for a long time. In the 1690s, there were numerous struggles against the Maroons. Many were sacrificed and others returned to their owners in Cartagena, while still others were sold and sent to other places. Most of the Palenques were destroyed and the survivors spread in search of refuge, giving life to new communities or increasing the ranks of others. During this time, the colonial authorities were unable to handle the problem peacefully. Only when the situation became unbearable, where the Maroons offered prerogatives, truces, and treaties, 
but progress was rarely made, due mainly to the inconsistency of colonial authorities, the indecision of the municipal authorities, and the pressure of the neighbors who had much to lose with the freedom of blacks. As we could see in the previous narratives, Maronash was an act of rebellion in the face of the oppression imposed by the condition of slavery. Maronash became a form of mobilization, sometimes dispersed, as we saw in the previous episode, in the biography of a runaway. On other occasions, Maronash became a military, social, and cultural community project. The struggles of runaway slaves destabilized the colonial system by acting as an antithesis of the values defended by the settlers. At the same time, Maronash meant the rescue and preservation of the values of the African people and the affirmation of their freedom that translated into their languages, religion, music, dances, and in their constant demand for self-determination. By creating their communities and governments, they gave rise to new ways of life that blended with those of the indigenous and whites, depending on where they were located. In the article, Conspirators Enslaved in Cartagena in the 17th Century, Jane Landers says that the colonial history of what is today Colombia is full of African rebellions. The first one dated in 1531, when some slaves burned the city of Santa Marta. The phenomenon of fled and risen was then a constant in Nueva Granada, former Colombia. Besides, the number of whites was less than the growing number of slaves entering the port, which created widespread fear. For example, in various ordinances, there are repeated concerns about thefts orchestrated by slaves. Then, without much success and in an attempt to limit their movement, the slaves were forbidden to go out at night, to live apart from their masters, to carry weapons, and to gather on Sundays to perform their dances in places that had not been designated by the cabildo. Despite the anguish and the state of paranoia in which Cartagena's neighbors lived, the demand for slaves increased. Each ship imported between 300 and 600 slaves. In addition, between 12 and 14 ships a year were coming through the port. So, do the math. In 1621, Governor Garcia Giron declared that there were more than 20,000 slaves in Cartagena. Experts today estimate that from 1580 to 1640, between 135,000 and 192,000 Africans entered Nueva Granada through Cartagena de Indias. On the other hand, and contrary to what many have said over the years, the imported slaves came from places in Africa with cultural background and development. It has been documented that after 1570, most of the slaves came from Guinea and Cape Verde. Later, they came from Angola and Congo. Many of them mastered the handling of bronze, gold, and iron, as well as textiles and sculpture. 
Some had been miners, ranchers, and came from societies with a high social, political, and religious organization. Now let's talk about the Palenque leaders and their defensive strategies. Clara Inés Guerrero García, in her article, Palenque Memories of Freedom, says that the strategic position of the Montes de Maria in Colombia, communicated by fresh water with the interior and with the sea, facilitated the mobility of the Maroons, as well as the entry of goods to the city, the exit of precious metals, the slave trade, and the delivery of mail. Everything that entered the colonies had to pass through its territory, for the Magdalena River was the way of communication, and that was the area of the Maroons. This is one of the reasons why settlers also lived in great distress. The goods were sometimes raided by the Maroons, who had a better knowledge of the territory. But this does not mean that they were happy to give themselves to pillaging. Rather, it was a survival strategy that they followed at different times, while they were trying to reach an agreement for their freedom. Part of the struggle for the recognition of their communities was that if they were recognized as subjects of the crown, they hoped to acquire the legal status of people with souls and rights. If so, they could settle and grow as a community with dignity and character of their own, rather than being regarded as savage fugitives outside the law. Maria Cristina Navarrete says in her article Kings, Queens, and Captains that the Palenques were communities with a diversity of values, ways of understanding the Maronesh, and with social, ethnic, and political divergences. The date of the formation and duration of these communities influenced how they organized politically. In other words, those Palenques that were raised in the 16th and 17th centuries differ significantly from the Palenques formed later. This difference lies both in the type of leaders and in the model used to legitimize their authority. For example, before 1700, most leaders of the Maroon communities came from Africa and, in many cases, claimed to have royal ancestry. This was the case with Cangasumba in Brazil, Domingo Viojo in Colombia, Yanga in Mexico, and Bayano in Panama, who at the time declared themselves kings of their palenques or quilombos. In contrast, by the 18th century, the Maroon leaders were mostly Creoles. That is, that they were born in the Americas and were called captains, governors, colonels instead of kings. Life in the Palenques was difficult as they were always under attack. They were continually preparing to defend themselves against the Spanish militias since they feared the disintegration of their family and friendship groups after an attack. In many cases, it was agreed that they should be grouped under the idea of belonging to the same master, that is to say, the owner of the first fugitives. This was influenced by the so-called belly law, which determined that those born of a free man 
an enslaved woman should serve, which means that slavery was inherited through the maternal line. It is said that the maroon Maria Embondo told her children born in the Palenque that they were slaves of Don Hilario Marquez, and that if the Palenque were to fall, they should not go to another house other than that of Don Marquez. Finally, it is worth mentioning that El Palenque de San Basilio is a community descended from colonial Maroons that have historically survived to this day. And it still retains the African heritage, which is expressed in its language with Bantu, Kingo, Kimbundu influence, and in its funeral rites and spiritual vision. Due to all this and the intertwined stories of fights for freedom, is that in 2005, the UNESCO declared El Palenque de San Basilio an intangible cultural heritage of humanity. And that's all for today. We will come back in two weeks with the last episode on Afro-Latino narratives. For now, I'll leave you with a poem by the Colombian poet Lucrecia Panchano. Until the next cuento. Adios, adios. In your physiognomy, hair and skin, Africa screams. Screams in the mixing of pigmentation. Screams in the soul, where the noble of every being dwell. And it echoes in the twists and turns of the imagination. Africa screams in the thousand voices of the ancestor. As a telluric force, it shudders our being. Screams everything about him, which is also ours, in all our actions and our work. Africa screams in all that means life, and in the nameless pain of centuries of oppression. Africa screams in hope and in the lost faith, and in the seclusions of our hearts. Africa screams not to inventory an infamous past, nor make reminders of humiliating racism. Africa screams to push us to move on so that our identity doesn't go to the abyss. Africa screams in blood that runs through the veins and it makes the heart a place of confluence. Screams in our joys also in our sorrows and reveals in its roots his physical presence in all that exists and in all that our environment shakes. Africa vehemently and bluntly screams. Tres Cuentos is a creative exercise of researching, writing, and retelling. This podcast was produced and edited by Carolina Quiroga Stoltz. Special thanks to my friend Don Jaimo for proofreading and recording the stories. And if you liked this episode, please, please, please let us know. You can write a review on iTunes or you can send us an email through our website, trescuentos.com. And of course, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. That way you know when the next episode is coming out. 
The music and sound effects were downloaded from the YouTube audio library and freemusicarchive.org. The list of credits per song and the sources of this story can be found in the transcript. Thanks for listening. Adios, adios.